Good morning, and thank you all for coming out this morning to hear the commencement of our study in the book of Luke. Tim mentioned that we were going to be reading from the first four verses of Luke, and we will get there eventually. What I would like to do is read to you, or read with you, a passage which uh, you may not immediately associate with Luke. And if you've got your Bible, I'd encourage you to open the book of 2 Timothy, in chapter 4, and verse number 9. 2 Timothy 4 and 9. Now, before I read this passage, can I just place it in its historical context? A.D. 64, July the 19th. A fire raged throughout Rome. Rome was made up of 15 distinct districts. Ten of them were totally burnt to the ground. More than likely, it started as a result of a fire in a warehouse. However, the general opinion held by the people at the time was that Nero, the emperor, the man who was nicknamed the Beast, the horror story of Roman emperors, that Nero had set fire to the city so that he could rebuild his dream city. Of course, whenever this got to Nero and he realized the population were turning against him and the life of a Roman emperor was dangerous, you only have to look at what happened to some of them. When he realized that this was happening, Nero persecuted the Christians. He blamed them. He rounded them up. Tacitus, the Roman historian, describes in great detail the unbelievable treatment that those first-generation Christians suffered. One of the men who was in Rome, initially under house arrest, and subsequently arrested, and condemned to death was Paul. Paul was thrown into a prison, not a normal prison. This prison was there were actually the remains of an old water vault underground. It was described by Sallust, the Roman historian, as a place of darkness. It was a place of stench, neglect, and terrifying, uh, terrifying approach. That's what the Roman historian says. And Paul would have been taken down into this prison. You didn't stay in prison in Rome or in this period. You didn't do a, a prison sentence as we do today. Nine times out of ten, you were put into prison awaiting a trial or awaiting execution. Paul was waiting for execution in probably the most horrific place in the city of Rome. A man who had been beaten, a man who has, was ill, a man who was broken, physically broken, in the most 
terrible of conditions. And these are his last words. And this is what he writes. Be diligent to come to me quickly. Demas has forsaken me. He loved his present world and has departed for Thessalonica, Crescens for Galatia, Titus for Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you. He's useful for the ministry. Bring the cloak that I left with Carpus. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. May the Lord repay him. Beware of him. Down to verse 16, at my first defense, no one stood with me. All forsook me. But the Lord stood with me, strengthened me, so that the message might be preached fully through me, and that all the Gentiles might hear, and I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. And the Lord will deliver me from every evil work, and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Only Luke was with me. In that terrible, dark, damp, stinking cell were two of the most prominent writers of the New Testament sitting face to face. Luke wrote more of the New Testament than Paul. That might surprise you. Luke's accounts take up, by word count alone, 27% of the New Testament. If you take it by chapters, it is nearly a third. Paul wrote slightly less, and other writers contribute to the remainder. There in that cell, face to face, were Paul and Luke. How did Luke get into that cell? He was, Paul was condemned. How did he ever get down in? Well, again, you go into the history. And in the Roman times, people were allowed visits into cells. They were allowed to come down and bring food, which was for scarcely available. They were allowed to come in and to meet face to face with the individual. And at times, it was actually encouraged to bring people in because they used to say that the Roman cell had many ears. Because as Paul and Luke conversed, people were listening. At the top of the cell, there was an opening where the water used to be drawn from. They listened and they were looking for evidence as Luke conversed with Paul. But Luke brought something else. Luke was a, a doctor. We're told that. He's only mentioned three times in the New Testament. He was a travel companion of Paul. He went with him on his second and his third missionary journey. He was a Gentile. In other words, he wasn't a Jew. 
He was probably born in Antioch of Syria, and for a while certainly lived in Philippi, as we mentioned a while back. And Luke, with his medical skills, would have come down into that cell, and he would have shown compassion and love and care for the Apostle Paul. Only Luke is with me. Let those words resonate. Look at the picture. Here's a man, a medical professional, a man who's been a missionary, comes to the Roman guards and says, allow me in. And they say, certainly, Luke. He goes down and he speaks face to face and comforts Paul. What a picture. But it was also a brave man. I just told you the significance of what was happening in Rome when Paul was writing this. And the Christians, some of them who we read about, had dispersed. Some for safety's sake had left. We cannot be critical of that. But they had left and they'd gone away and Luke stayed. And the one word that I would use to describe Luke in the midst of what Paul is saying, in the midst of his physical loneliness, is compassion. Compassion. And Tim has mentioned to us that we are doing a two-year theme of the Lord is our shepherd. And we have looked at the compassion of Psalm 23. And if you were to ask me for one word to describe Luke's approach to telling the story in the book of Luke and in the book of Acts, it is the compassion he shows for individuals, the gentleness, the love, the concern. And resonating right through it from the very moment that we have Mary and the whole birth of Christ, right through that whole way, right through that story, we have Luke constantly telling us about the compassion and the gentleness of Christ. Can I say something? We need more Luke's. As a Christian group, as a, a Christian church, we need people who are willing to take the risk, to take the time, to take the inconvenience, to show compassion. Do not point the finger. Do not desert those in need. But to come down to their level whether it's in a hospital ward or whether it's in a room while a person is dying or while it is a person who is confused and irritated or while it is a person who has lost their faith or while it is a person who has fallen away. Compassion. We need looks. But there's another interesting thing about Luke, and it resonates in the account that I just read. Don't worry, we will get to Luke chapter 1. Paul talks about the gospel going out to the Gentiles. He says that in the passage. 
that he is glad that he took the gospel to the Gentiles. And Paul, who is a Jew, a Roman citizen sitting there in that cell, is looking straight into the eyes of a man who's a Gentile. He wasn't a Jew. He came from, as I mentioned, probably Antioch and Syria. He wasn't brought up in the Jewish traditions and the Jewish customs. In many ways, the Jewish community looked looked as, as an outsider. He wasn't part of the establishment. He wouldn't have been part of the the so-called council of Jerusalem, for example. He was a Gentile. And that is reflected right throughout Luke's account. Luke approaches the story that he's about to tell us, and he approaches it as a Gentile, not a Jew. And that is really, really significant. Because the words that he uses to describe patterns and things that happen, he brings them into the Greek language. He doesn't use the Aramaic. He reaches out to the Gentile, to to you and to me. And he brings in the story of the outsider more than anybody else. He starts with the shepherds. The shepherds? Those men who were despised, who were rejected, who were looked down upon, Luke brings them into the Christmas story, and I'm not going to steal somebody's message, but he, he brings them into the Christmas story from the very, very start, the outsider. And Luke finishes his account just before the resurrection at the cross with a thief. He talks about a thief on the cross who is an outsider, who's been condemned to death, a man who is shunned by society. And Luke says, compassion was shown, and he was brought into the kingdom. And right in the midst of the whole of the story, and I could narrate so many more, right in the midst we have the key word, one of the key verses in the whole of Luke, and it's in the story of Zacchaeus. An outsider, a man who had to climb a tree to get a view. And Luke brings that story out to us, and he says, for he came to seek and to save that which was lost. And so Luke not only shows compassion, but Luke says, like you, I was on the outside looking in, And I can tell you now, here is the story. Here is the story. So Luke was a pastor. Luke was a missionary. Luke was a historian. Now you're really into my territory. For those of you who don't know me, my name is David, as you may know, but I have been a history teacher for nearly 40 years. My grandchildren, when they grew up, actually said to their granny one day, Granny, why is it everywhere that granddad takes us to, the building has fallen down? And that's because we would visit every church ruin or whatever, or church graveyards. But many of you have got the wrong perception of history. And it's the school system which has done it. 
you had to learn the kings and queens of England and oh dear, 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 and that man up there, he puts me to sleep and I, I hate it. Others of you realize the value of history afterwards, but that's not history in the classroom today. My grandson asked me one of the days this week, he said, Granda, what's your favorite history lesson you ever taught? You see, I'm beginning to influence him. What's your favorite history lesson? I said, Mike, it's easy, it's Tulland Man. What? Tulland Man. And I see some of the young ones, they know exactly what I'm talking about. Because the first lesson in first year history, which I would have taught, was the story of the body found in the peat bog. And the children were given the evidence and they were trying to determine what happened. And that's what a historian does. He looks for the facts, he looks for the evidence, he looks for the things which are written, he looks for the eyewitness, he draws them all together, and he puts nothing onto paper unless he can prove it. Unless he can prove it. And that's why I am so annoyed at times at some of the revisionist theories about our history that we read or some of the things you see on the internet regarding history. Things which are just plucked out of the air, totally irrelevant, and stuck in and then become historical truth because they're repeated so many times. A historian cannot stand in public unless he can prove what he is going to say. So now let's go to Luke. I'm going to Luke chapter 1 and the first four verses, please. So now we're reading about Luke the historian. Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things that are most surely believed among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to you or to us, it seemed good to me also, having had or having accurately followed, and this word there is really strong, having accurately followed or had perfect understanding of all things from the very first to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. This here is a single sentence. It would be known as a prologue. It would have been quite characteristic of ancient historical writers to introduce their historical account with a prologue. But Luke does something even more that we don't realize whenever we read it in our language. According to the scholars, they tell us that Luke wrote these four words in the most perfect classical Greek. He wrote it in such a way that it was giving it academic credibility. Today we get academic credibility through peer-reviewed papers, etc. Well, Luke is saying, here's my 
academic credibility. And also, whenever you look at the ancient historians and they write, they usually dedicated their historical work to a person of note, a person of significance. And in Luke's account, he does exactly that same thing. He says, I'm dedicating this to you, Theophilus. His name means lover of God. But it's most excellent Theophilus. Theophilus was a man of immense reputation. It's like saying to somebody in a court of law, Your Honor, or addressing a queen or a person of the royal family as Your Majesty, or giving somebody the proper term of Sir. It's a, a, an expression saying, Theophilus, you are a significant individual. Now, that gives credibility to Luke's work in the ancient world. Significant credibility. It's the equivalent to being peer-reviewed because he's named this man most excellent Theophilus, one who's held in very high esteem, and I'm writing it for you. And I'm writing it for you. Why? So that you might be grounded in the things that you believe. And Luke goes right through the whole of the gospel and the Acts, giving an orderly, and he uses that word, historical account. So not only does he deal with it as a Gentile looking from the outside, not does he deal with the content with real compassion and gentleness, but he says, I'm giving it to you in an orderly account. He said, I've looked at other writings. Oh, by the way, other writings. Whenever we read that passage from Paul, Paul says, would you bring me my parchment? And it says parchment in our English language, but it's the only time that word is used in the whole of the Bible, and the word is the word from which we get membrane. And whenever you go back into the ancient world, apologies for the history lesson, but people carried membrana. And a membrana was usually two pieces of wood linked together with a metal clip with papyrus or even thin wood in between, and it was a file. Don't for one moment think that the first generation people couldn't read and write or that they were thick, and that we somehow or other have got this great academic knowledge that they didn't have. I encourage you to try to build a viaduct like the Romans did. These men were geniuses. They did have geniuses in the first century. And these men kept records on their membrana, and Paul says, bring me my membrana, bring me my, my files my records, those things that I've written down, and look and access to all of this written material, written records, and eyewitnesses. Okay, you say, when was Luke written? Luke was written probably about 30 years after the death of Christ, give or take a number of years. 30 years, you say? Yeah, 30 years. 
I know you're only in your 20s and you seem like a long time ago. When you're in 60s, 30 years seems like yesterday. 30 years ago in Northern Ireland, we had what was called the Troubles. If you asked any of us who lived through it, we could all tell you everything about it. We could narrate to you the experiences we had. We could tell you the people who were there. We could tell you everything that was there. And so therefore, look, coming along 30 years later, that is incredibly close to the event. He talks to eyewitnesses. Every historian agrees that Luke probably talked to Mary, the mother of Jesus. He talked to people. He records events. Do you know that Luke uses 117 place names which have been validated? 114 names of individuals, the vast majority of which have been validated. He names events in history for which there is specific evidence. He does it in meticulous detail. Whenever I used to talk to my students, in particular at A-level work, and how do you know a document is true? Well, first of all, you work from the preposition that it is true until you can prove it wrong. That's basic. The writing of a person is true until you can prove it wrong. And Luke writes, and you have got to prove him wrong. And yet, he, when I would say to my students, I'd say to them, look for the facts, look for the memorable things, look for the things that are, you, can, you can say, that's absolutely certain. Are they correct? And if those details are correct, that leads, leads credibility to the account. Luke has recorded everything in detail. He spoke to the eyewitnesses. He's had access to written material. He's talked to Paul. He's talked to the apostles. He said, I have now sat down and I am a man of immense competence and ability. I am a trained medical doctor. I am a man of intellectual ability. I am a historian and I'm going to write an orderly account. What does he mean by orderly account? Well, you see, we have the other Gospels. Matthew was written for the Jew. And so, therefore, he focused on writing things to prove to the Jewish people that Christ was the Messiah. John was written to the world. Mark was written to the Romans. And therefore, they select, not just at random, but you cannot write the whole life of an individual because John himself says if you were to write it, all of the books of the world would not contain it. They select various aspects of history to prove their point. But Luke says... I'm going to tell you what happened. And he does. He starts before the birth of Christ and he ends with the gospel in Rome. Right throughout the whole of history. And our responsibility is to prove him wrong. You can't accept it. Prove him wrong. So, he was a missionary, he was a doctor, and he was a historian. But why is it so important? Let me read to you another verse, if you have your Bible. This is Paul speaking this time. And it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse number 12. 
verse 13. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is vain, and your faith is also vain. Yes, we have found false witnesses of God. Because we have found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that He raised up Christ, whom He did not raise up. In fact, if the dead do not rise, here's the important verse. If Christ did not rise, then if the dead is do not rise and Christ is not risen, and if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sin. Here's what makes the Christian faith completely and totally unique to other major faiths around the world. It hinges on history. Please understand that. It hinges on history. If Christ did not rise from the dead, then what we believe is false. That's what Paul says. But Christ did rise from the dead. And because Christ rose from the dead, we have everything that we believe as a consequence. We have his death, his atoning sacrifice for our sins, the person of Christ, the person who is the Son of Man, the Son of God. We have it all, but it hinges on history. Remember what I said? If you don't believe Luke, prove him wrong. Prove him wrong. Because if Luke is right, and I believe he is, the most pivotal significant event in history and the most pivotal significant event for you as an individual is the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There was a well-known historian, an atheist. He decided that he would prove Luke wrong. He was called Ramsey. He set off to take the historical accounts of Luke and he followed them in detail looking for historical inaccuracy. This man, Ramsey, became one of the most widely acknowledged archaeologists and historians of his generation and is still looked upon as one of the world authorities to this day. He decided to follow Luke step by step and prove him wrong. And he looked at all of the events that Luke unfolded and as he discussed and their places and the names and everything else. And Ramsey followed him for years on that journey. And every place he went to, he found that Luke was right. And before he returned home to England, he was a Christian. An atheist followed the history of Luke and came to the conclusion, he's right. And if he is right, historically correct, 
that has an impact upon me because it's a theological issue now. And we haven't even touched on the theology of Luke. We'll leave that to the speakers. The theological, spiritual implication for you is that if Luke is right, Jesus Christ is who he says he is. He died for you. He rose again. And he is coming again. We need Luke's men who show compassion, women who show love and care. We see Luke the missionary. We've seen Luke the historian. But we also see Luke the Christian. I wonder how he came to faith. I wonder who he met. Could you imagine that first conversation that Luke had with the first Christian that he ever met? You're telling me about Jesus Christ. Yeah, I'd heard something about him. And Luke, with an analytical mind, would have quizzed that individual. He'd have listened to everything. He'd have checked every detail. He'd have made sure that it made sense. And he came to that point of faith. And it transformed his life. We're going to see Luke showing compassion through Christ. We're going to see all of the history unfold. But at this moment in time, the question is for you. If Christ is not risen, then our faith is in vain. You prove him wrong.